This episode is brought to you by Aspirion, the lipid management company, singularly focused on lipid management for everybody. We won't stop until every patient reaches their LDLC goal. Learn more at Aspirion.com. From the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief, with this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. I'm recording this on July 11, 2019, and the three articles I'm going to discuss today will come out in Jack this coming Monday. I've chosen three articles that I think are interesting and relevant for practice. One of them is entitled Myocardial Infarction Risk Stratification with a Single Measurement of High-Sensitivity Troponin I. The second looks at the association of blood pressure and cholesterol levels during young adulthood and later cardiovascular events. And the third is a nice state-of-the-art review looking at coronary artery disease management in patients undergoing TAVR. So let's get started. The first article was a look at the value of trying to risk stratify MI using a single measurement of high-sensitivity troponin I. The study included prospective observational patient enrollment at 29 U.S. sites looking at high-sensitivity troponin I using two different measurement platforms. To identify low-risk patients, the authors developed sensitivities and negative predictive values for acute MI and MI or death at 30 days, and these were examined across different levels of high-sensitivity troponin I. To identify high-risk patients and positive predictive values and specificities for acute MI were evaluated as well. Negative predictive values and diagnostic sensitivities and corresponding 95% confidence limits were calculated to try to figure out the best diagnostic cut points for ruling in and ruling out MI. They studied over 2,000 patients. Acute MI was diagnosed in one out of eight or 12%. And the, the sensitivities and negative predictive values varied a lot, but were very high in the 98 to 99% range. An optimized threshold of less than five nanograms per liter identified about half the patients as low risk. And the sensitivity of that was nearly 99% and the negative predictive value also was very high. Interestingly, for high-risk patients, a single measure high-sensitivity troponin I greater than 120 nanograms per liter resulted in a positive predictive value for MI of more than 70%. So the authors, doing a very sophisticated analysis, reasoned that it is potentially possible for us to use a single measurement of troponin high where a very low level, less than 5 nanograms per liter, identified almost half the patients as low risk, and a very high level, greater than 120, identified a large cohort of individuals who are very likely, and 70% likely, frankly, to have an acute MI. I think it's an important article. You know, we're still coming to grips with how we use high-sensitivity troponin assays. It's hard for us to unlearn the previous use of troponins and acute MI risk stratification. Clearly, the high-sensitivity troponin assays do allow something for us in the ruling out of MI, and in some ways, that is their greatest value in emergency department management, in my opinion. And this article suggests that a single value done at less than five nanograms per liter does identify a very high likelihood of a low-risk patient. So let's move on, and let's talk about the second article, which looks at the associations of blood pressure and cholesterol levels, both during young adulthood and then later, and subsequent cardiac events. This is a very interesting analysis. 
The authors pooled data from six U.S. cohorts that had observations spanning the life course from young adulthood to later in life. And they imputed the risk factor trajectories for LDL, cholesterol, HDL, systolic and diastolic blood pressure starting at age 18 and for every participant. And then they looked at time-weighted average exposures to each risk factor from age 18 to 39 and then after the age of 40 to sort of link the burden of risk over time and whether early elevations of blood pressure and or lipid values correlated with risk. It was a big study, over 36,000 participants, median follow-up of 17 years, and there were about 4,500 coronary events, 5,000 heart failure events, and 2,800 stroke events. When they looked at young versus later adult risk factors, young patients with an LDL greater than or equal to 100 milligrams per deciliter compared to those below had a 64% increased risk of coronary heart events, independent of later exposure. Similarly, a young adult systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 130 compared to less than 120 was associated with 37% increased risk for heart failure. And a younger diastolic pressure greater than 80 compared to less than was associated with a 21% increased risk. So the authors concluded that cumulative young adult exposures to elevated systolic and diastolic blood pressure and LDLC were associated with an increased risk. And this is, a, I think, a unique contribution of this study. And it, it certainly argues for the notion that when we see younger patients who have borderline blood pressures or borderline lipid levels, we should certainly be thinking hard about their therapy because this study suggests that years of exposure of an LDL greater than 100 or a systolic pressure between 130 and 140 does have consequence independent of the later presence or control of those risk factors. So it's an important study and one that I think should influence how we think about treatment of our younger patients. The third and final article I want to talk about today is uh, looking at coronary disease in patients undergoing TAVR. Currently, it's thought that about half of the patients who have TAVR have coronary disease. And there's a lot of controversy about how much this influences outcomes. Does the presence and severity of CAD really have a big effect on post-TAVR outcomes? There's very limited data on the value of, say, CT angiography or functional stress testing to identify coronary disease. Most patients have a coronary angiogram. Also, the impact of CAD on TAVR recipients is unfinished in terms of how we should revascularize. When should we revascularize? Most places do routine PCI, usually before the TAVR, and is that appropriate? There are ongoing randomized trials that should help determine whether this strategy versus medical therapy is best. Also, the timing of PCI pre-TAVR is uncertain. Or should we do a combined procedure where we're doing TAVR and PCI at the same time? These are all areas of question. Also, there's a scarce amount of data on how we should manage coronary events post-TAVR. And of course, the TAVR itself can create issues with coronary access in terms of catheter-based imaging. So this is also an area of interest and uncertainty. Coronary syndromes post-TAVR 
have often now occurred in places that don't have a large experience with revascularization, and so increasingly this is an area that's a conundrum. Two randomized trials that recently were published looking at the benefit of TAVR in lower-risk patients only heighten this notion that we're operating in a data-free zone in terms of the most optimal way of identifying and treating coronary disease in patients undergoing TAVR. I thought it was a really good article, and I think it certainly points out the notion that our current practice plan is based on very little evidence. While it makes sense in terms of what we've done in the past, it it certainly requires more scientific scrutiny. So I want to thank you for listening to Eagle's Eye View. I I really enjoy the chance to review three or so articles every week from uh, acc.org. You can find these articles and the journal scans on the website. Also, there's an educational catalog there under the Education and Meetings tab. Using that tool, you can sort our educational offerings by various formats, and of course, many of these are free. And until next week, I look forward to talking to you on Eagle's Eye View, and I hope your week is a good one. Thank you.